Welcome back to another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. I'm Claude Barabee, Director of the Naval Academy Museum. Our guest today is Dr. Toshi Yoshihara, who is a Senior Fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments in Washington, D.C. He was previously a Professor of Strategy at the U.S. Navy War College, Naval War College. Uh, he also served as Visiting Professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, University of California, San Diego, and Strategy Department of the U.S. Air War College. He is the co-author with James Holmes in the second edition of Red Star Over the Pacific, China's Rise and the Challenge to U.S. Maritime Strategy. His current book, put out by Georgetown University Press, is Mao's Army Goes to Sea, the Island Campaigns and the Founding of China's Navy. Dr. Yoshihara, welcome to the Naval Academy. Thanks for having me. And I, Or I should say, welcome back. You're familiar with the, with the Naval Academy. You've been here a number of times, so yes. we really appreciate you coming by to talk about your most recent book. I'm going to start <clears throat> with a, a rather provincial question since we're here at the Naval Academy. In your book, which focuses on 1949 and 1950, you, you have references to all these Naval Academies, the Dalian Naval Academy, Nanjing Naval Academy, Yantai, Wusong, Maui, Andong, Tianshan. Why does China have so many naval academies? Is it intentionally decentralized? Are they specialized naval academies? So there is a historic backdrop to the development of these naval academies, um, partly because of the regionalization of China in, in general. Um, and the regionalization of the Navy, of course, uh, goes all the way back to certainly to the Qing dynasty. Um, where um, the, 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 the regional navies really um, had control of both the operational and the administrative aspects of those regional navies. And of course, as we know, uh, it, it was partly because of the regionalization of the navy or the balkanization of the navy um, that uh, led to the various defeats of the Chinese navy during the, what's called the Century of Humiliation. Um, so 18, 1894 with the sorry 1884 with the French 1894 with the Japanese. Mm -hmm, that's right, um, and and so the the structure of the educational system is a reflection of the regionalization or, or the balkanization of the navy. Now, in the um, post-revolution period, uh, what we saw was the establishment of new educational institutions like the Dalian Naval Academy. Uh, and the uh, uh, Naval Command College, for example, uh, based in uh, Nanjing. And um, those are in part a reflection of the various sort of uh, levels of, of um, education. So the Dalian Naval Academy um, would be sort of the equivalent of the Naval Academy here. And then, of course, the Command College would represent the higher levels of you know, graduate education on uh, naval affairs. That, that's interesting. I should have probably asked you that question a few years ago. Uh, listeners will remember when we did a special exhibit on Philo McGiffin, Naval Academy class of 1882, who went on in 1884 to join the Chinese Navy, be helped found one of their Naval Academies, I think it was Tianjin, and then became their superintendent. So in essence, tell our listeners what this book is about. So this, uh, this book tells uh, two uh, stories that run in parallel. The first story that I tell is really the founding of the Chinese Navy um, in April of 1949. And I describe both the institutional, the manpower, the material resource constraints 
that the Chinese leadership faced as they tried to stand up the Navy itself. The second story that I tell in the book is actually more operational in nature, where I talk about uh, the major uh, offshore campaigns uh, that the People's Liberation Army, the PLA, waged in order to seize various uh, major offshore features off the coast of China. Um, and I also organize the uh, operational aspects of those campaign from an institutional perspective. And so rather than organize those campaigns chronologically, I actually organize them around the warfighting organizations responsible for those campaigns. And so um, I first look at the third field army's uh, campaigns, and then I turn next to the fourth uh, field army campaigns. And the organizational structure of the book was very deliberate. It was partly to make the case that um, we uh, need to look at this from an institutional perspective uh, in order to understand the institutional personalities uh, that were formed at the get-go, either the East China Navy, uh, that was the precursor to the uh, East China Fleet, or the People's Liberation Army Navy, the national institution, uh, as well as the regional commands uh, uh, that were organized around the Third Field Army and the Fourth Field Army. And again, the premise of the book is to say that we, th the best way to understand some of the institutional DNAs, if you will, that were left behind uh, by these institutions can only be truly understood by looking at them institutionally and organizationally. Now, you, you understand this as somebody who has a PhD, that you had an advisor. That person had an advisor. So you can always get a sense of that ancestry of, an, of a person's academic pedigree. Can you look at the officer, the senior officers today, in the same way as, uh, as you see, you know, a one or two generations of academicians? Can you see how they think today compared to how those initial naval commanders did in 1949 and 1950? I think that you can take a better measure of the lasting influence of these early generation army officers up to a point, meaning I think that um, the regionalization of the various military commands um, began to sort of break apart um, in the 70s, uh, certainly in, in the post-reform era. So um, the clearest evidence of this lineage or of this linkage to the past uh, is, is probably more evident in the 1950s and, and 60s. And I explain in, in the book uh, that looking at the institutional background of these um, regional fleets is very important because um, <clears throat> the Third Field Army essentially uh, became the garrison force of the territories that they conquered on the east coast of China. Uh, the Fourth Field Army also uh, became the occupiers, if you will, of the uh, southern coast of of China, and they essentially became the administrative bodies um, of those respective regions. They basically conquered the territories and then settled down into those areas as the head of the garrisons of those respective areas. Um, and so um, they became, as uh, one um, American scholar called it, really a, a, a another form of warlordism. 
where these field armies that settled into those garrison regions uh, would uh, create their patronage systems and their, and their various networks. And it's not surprising, as I show in the book, um, successive uh, Chinese regional commanders um, affiliated with the naval command were all from those respective field armies. So successive leaders of the East uh, Sea Fleet were all uh, former commanders of the Third Field Army. I also show that um, the commander of the South Sea Fleet, up to the, certainly through the 1960s, were all former commanders of the Fourth Field Army. And so I think certainly up to the 1960s and 70s, you can trace that lineage and make the case that uh, those um, field armies left a deep institutional imprint on those respective regional fleets. Now, Mao, Mao's navy really relied very, arguably very heavily on former nationalist senior officers, a point you make in your book. Um, why was it that so many senior officers from the nationalists turned and began to command P PLAN units? So um, this probably goes back to the um, United Front history. So um, basically, at the beginning of the, um, the rise of Chinese communist power, uh, they decided to pursue what's been called a United Front strategy, meaning that they would form um, an allegiance of convenience with the nationalists, uh, and then their strategy was to seek to um, divide the nationalists from within. And so they temporarily formed a united front uh, in the 1920s. And so uh, many communists actually donned nationalist uniforms, pledged allegiance to the nationalists. And so you can imagine uh, at the, um, uh, the uh, Huangpu uh, Military Academy, which was where uh, Chiang Kai-shek uh, trained uh, his cohort of subordinates, um, there were uh, you know, significant communist presence. They developed relationships, uh, and one can assume that those networks and those relationships are persisted through the decades. So one could imagine that uh, the nationalist leadership had those relationships and created openings for uh, efforts by the communists to engage in subversion, uh, to persuade them to uh, switch sides. Now, one of the things that, that really surprised me as I was looking at um, the communist narrative about this period um, is just um, how much they depended on the nationalist initially. And I, I had no idea as I was reading uh, these open sources um, their willingness to open up billets and positions for former nationalists to fill. And I think that's one of the um, uh, sort of blank canvases that I tried to fill, because I think that story hasn't been very well told, certainly in the Western literature. And that, that seemed to be very difficult for a lot of the um, PLA officers to accept. Was it Mao who really set the, set the pace and said, no, we will, ex we will integrate them? So uh, there was both a sort of a top-down attempt to make the integration of the nationalists happen. And then there was sort of the more grassroots attempt by the local commander. So I document uh, in the book uh, the, the, command, the first commander of the East China Navy, who's also considered the founder of the Chinese Navy writ large, um, Zhang Aiping, who um, understood that if he were to try to stand up this 
new institution that required a lot of technical expertise and knowledge that he would have to rely on uh, former nationalists who were willing to collaborate. And I think uh, his judgment uh, was confirmed by Mao Zedong himself, who agreed to meet with uh, some of the top leadership from the former nationalist navy. Uh, in fact, he met with them, I believe, in August of 1949 in the Zhongnanhai compound, uh, where he talked about the need to uh, look beyond the past, to look beyond the civil war, uh, to uh, collaborate with the nationalists to help found this uh, navy within the new China. Can you give us a sense of how large the nationalist navy was at this time and what it was basically comprised of? I'm not, 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 not a complete order of battle, but a uh, general sense. Well, I, I, you know, I mean, I would say the nationalist navy uh, was um, a really a hodgepodge navy uh, that was um, a combination at the time of um, relatively modern ships that were handed over, for example, by the Imperial Japanese Navy as an element of the reparation process after the war. Mm -hmm. uh, there were also uh, ships that were imported from the West uh, during the Republican era. And as I document in the book, there were even uh, ships that were still in the fleet that came from the pre-Republican era uh, from the Qing dynasty. Uh, and so you really had um, a, 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 an, an amalgam of ships of unequal quality. Now, what was interesting about, about the 49-50 period was that the nationalists basically retreated to Taiwan and took as many of the best ships that they could. And so the communists were basically left with um, the leftovers, essentially, and they, you know, they, they really you know, confronted a significant material challenge uh, as they tried to integrate this hodgepodge fleet of from various areas of varying quality, um, and of course they were already sort of you know secondhand, thirdhand ships, and trying to manage the material maintenance aspects of that fleet was extraordinarily difficult. Can you discuss how they built their na their navy, as it were? Yeah. So in the book, um, I document. Um, uh, uh, multiple processes, you know, so the first one is about intellectual capital. And here uh, I talk about how they tried to uh, recruit or bring out of hiding uh, former nationalist officers and sailors who had either mutinied, surrendered, or just went into hiding. Uh, and so they had to uh, engage in uh, various recruitment drives and um, basically amnesty drives uh, to bring uh, these people out into the open and then to integrate them into, uh, um, into the staff and the leadership of the various Navy organizations. So intellectual capital was absolutely key. Um, the second one in terms of material is they basically learned to make do with what they had. Um, and so with the help of um, technical experts from the former Nationalist Navy, um, they were able to, you know, um, get spare parts from existing ships. Um, they also, uh, through the recruitment drive and through uh, the, um, the attempts to provide amnesty uh, to former nationalist officers uh, and uh, sailors, is to ha have them bring in as many of the spare parts, things that they put into hiding as they went into hiding, and um, so forth. Uh, 
another interesting technique that they noted in, in the various narratives is how they retrofitted uh, PLA Army equipment on uh, existing ships. Uh, and so they would, uh, you know, for example, take a former nationalist landing ship, probably inherited from the Americans, and then they would, they would put Army equipment on them as a stopgap measure. So there were all sorts of shortcuts that they took, and as I note in the book, probably would have horrified many Western observers uh, today or even at the time. Um, but I, I, was, I was very impressed with both their pragmatism but also their uh, determination to succeed through whatever means possible. Let's go back to the intellectual capital for a moment. On page 34, and I, again, I apologize because I know I'm going to mispronounce this. Is it Guo Cheng Sun? Mm-hmm. Okay. Nancheng's first commanding officer was one of 80 young officers sent to the United States and the United Kingdom in 1943 for further training and education. In your research, did you find out any more about this group? Because it just seems such a, such a large cadre. You might learn a lot from what they learned from us, or if there were, especially if there were any... Um, uh, declassified sources in some of our training systems here. So um, that's actually one of the areas I wished I had dug a little bit further into. But, you know, as I looked at the backgrounds and the histories of these former nationalist naval officers, uh, it's clear to me that, you know, Chiang Kai-shek had, had planned for a future Republic of China Navy and that the nucleus of that navy was you know was going to be this cadre of foreign trained naval officers uh and what's interesting is almost all of the nationalist naval officers uh obtained their high level training from overseas whether it's um britain the united states germany and even japan um and so what I document in the book also is how uh, these nationalists, these former nationalist officers who joined the communist cause um, represented essentially the, a kind of a Western school of thought uh, in these initial debates about uh, Chinese naval strategy. Um, although, again, I haven't, I haven't dug into um, you know, exactly what they brought to the table uh, from, a, from a tactical or a technical perspective. Uh, but it's clear to me that they were able to bring a school of thought into those debates, whereas I think the traditional historiography of uh, the early days of the Chinese Navy, the conventional wisdom is that they were sort of Soviet automatons, you, you know, if you will, mm-hmm. who really just borrowed largely unthinkingly from the Soviets. And I show in this case, because of the uh, relatively prominent role of former nationalists that there was in fact and likely was in fact um, Western influence at least as they were debating these issues looking at the choices that they had about the kinds of ships the kinds of tactics and operations that they were to adopt and that's really not that unusual because with Japan in the late 19th century before they established their Naval Academy of course they send uh, I think it was seven or eight students here, cadet, they were called cadets at the time, Baron, Baron Uryu was one of them, and he goes on to to uh, Tsushima. I think there were a couple of others, maybe Sarada had gone to Tsushima as well. But uh, you see these officers getting trained not only by the United States, I think it was at Yuma, uh, was it Togo who had also served in the British Navy to get some education. So 
I think it's a, that's a really interesting uh, thread that that uh, could be pursued. What was the and X I A O is that Xiao? Xiao, yeah. What's that plan? The Xiao plan. Uh, you mean Xiao Jingguang? Yeah. Uh, so uh, Xiao Jingguang uh, is is uh, so while um, Zhang Aiping is considered the founder of the Chinese Navy, he actually founded one of the regional navies, the East China Navy, in April of 1949. It was only about a year later. Uh, that uh, Xiao Jingguang was picked to be the commander of the National Navy. That would be the s sort of the, the the central organizing, the central principle organization that would oversee um, all naval um, institution building and operations. Um, Xiao um, Xiao Jingguang uh, shared many of the ideas that. Um, Zhang Aiping had about building the Navy. Um, he agreed with uh, Zhang Aiping that um, the, the Chinese Navy still needed to rely on former nationalist expertise, and he was willing to open up the National Navy to nationalist uh, ideas uh, and advice. Um, he also understood that um, because of the, t the terrible material state that the Chinese Navy was in, that he was prepared to take all sorts of technical shortcuts to get the ships out to sea. Again, um, some of these methods would have horrified Western observers. Um, and then, of course, um, he was the one who hosted the, the first Navy conference in uh, August of 1950 that um, really set the stage for the long-term Chinese naval buildup. And as I document in the book, um, Xiao was very realistic about um, what the Chinese Navy could achieve and uh, the kinds of platforms that it needed to achieve uh, China's aims. Um, there wasn't anything sort of grandiose about those plans. I think he understood um, that the Navy uh, had to be um, established to defend the Chinese coastline against both uh, nationalist aggression but potentially Western imperial aggression. Um, he also understood that given the straightened financial circumstances and the technical circumstances at the time, uh, that the Chinese Navy uh, had to be modest in terms of the kinds of forces uh, that it would need to defend the Chinese coastline. And so uh, they came up with a slogan uh, that was essentially, um, uh, that essentially encapsulated this idea that what China really needed were um, fast attack craft, uh, submarines and shore-based aircraft, and it was the combination of, of these forces that would e essentially seek to defend the coastal approaches to, to the mainland. Um, and um, again, at the conference, um, I highlight how they, they engaged, I think, in a fairly realistic net assessment of their security environment. Uh, the requirements for defending China's defensive needs, and then coming up with a, what I thought was a realistic, uh, fiscally responsible, realistic force structure uh, to meet China's defensive needs. To what degree did political ideology uh, affect the development of the uh, PLAN at this point? So uh, that was certainly one of the threads uh, that uh, ran through both the establishment of the East China Navy, the regional navy, and the national navy, um, which was this insistence that, uh, that the PLA possessed fine traditions 
uh, that could contribute to Navy building. Um, and that the leadership, both by the East China Navy, but also by the National Navy, understood um, that um, there needed to be a balance struck between the need for technical expertise and sort of ideological correctness. Um, the tension between technical expertise and um, political correctness, if you will, or um, ideological purity, I guess, uh, is was best sort of exemplified by the attempts to integrate nationalist officers and sailors um, into this new new navy. So they understood that they needed um, the uh, nationalists for their technical expertise. But I think many of the cadre uh, and of the officers within the PLA also saw the presence of the former nationalists as potential ideological contaminants, that they were potentially bringing in sort of um, – bourgeois ideology uh, into the force and that that would erode the PLA's esprit de corps. Uh, and so uh, there was a constant awareness that they needed to strike that balance, get as much of the technical expertise and know-how as possible without sort of contaminating the ideological purity of the organization. After all, the Civil War was in many ways fought along these ideological lines about you know what what should social equality, mm -hmm. what should social economic um, equity look like in, in, in this uh, new China. We ha you know, in the PLA, of course, was the armed force of a revolutionary party that was designed to sort of overthrow the existing system and create a new, to uh, create a new China. So this ideological imperative was obviously essential, but it had to give way uh, in some ways to allow for the uh, technical inputs by experts who actually knew what they were doing when it came to modern naval affairs. Um, and that, that tension persisted not only in the founding of the East China Navy, you saw Xiao Jingguang, the commander of the National Navy, struggling with striking that balance um, as well. And I think, um, as we mentioned earlier, this uh, very important high-level meeting between Mao and the former nationalist, I think Mao also uh, stated to these former nationalist officers um, that the PLA's fine traditions had had something meaningful and useful to contribute to this new endeavor. Could this book have been written 20 or 30 years ago? Um, I think parts of those narratives could have been written. Um, so a lot of the really, um, frankly, a lot of the really good histories of the Chinese Navy came out in, in the 1980s. Some of the sources that I relied on um, that provided um, historical accounts, basically, mm -hmm. of, of this period were published in the 1980s. And I would argue that the 1980s was a really interesting uh, golden era in openness. It was a period in which China had just opened up to the world. Um, and I think there was this renaissance in, uh, you know, writings about all things, but within the PLA, there was this, uh, you know, blossoming, this renaissance of this literature. Um, and I, I actually found many of the writings of that period to be the most useful in terms of um, both how frank they were, uh, and you can almost get a sense of just sort of how giddy people <laughs> were in, you know, finally freeing themselves of the post-Mao period and being able uh, to write and talk about 
talk about these issues. Um, but there was, a, but there were also more recent changes uh, that I hint at in the book that I accounted for uh, the greater openness and the greater availability of these writings. Uh, the first one uh, is um, simply because China had turned to the seas and that the Sea Power Project was a very important project that both the party and the state um, strongly supported. And so it was in the interest of the party and state to sort of encourage the proliferation of writings about sea power, uh, partly to um, advocate for the development of sea power, but also in part to get buy-in from the Chinese citizenry. Now, we know that, it, that China, of course, is an authoritarian regime, but even so, um, you know, the regime does need to uh, get, get some degree of buy-in from the people because, of course, building a navy is a highly capital-intensive endeavor. Especially when you're building the world's largest navy. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, and, and, right, especially given uh, the CCP's ambition. Um, and so I think, you know, as a result of this, um, uh, this ambition to build up this powerful navy, uh, you know, the party and state needed to kind of let the floodgates open in terms of naval advocacy and so forth. And so there was a, there was a flowering, you know, there was a re um, really a blossoming of this uh, literature to include retrospectives on the founding of the Chinese Navy. But I think there was an also another element to why some of these sources became available. And that's basically the, the atmosphere surrounding cross-strait relations. So there was certainly a period um, beginning with the Ma Ying-jeou administration um, uh, on Taiwan, where uh, there was a more sort of pro-China pro or China-friendly sentiment. And certainly during that period in the late 2000s into the early 2010s and so forth, there was, I think, um, a sense that uh, you know reconciliation between China and Taiwan was possible. Uh, and it seemed to me that that then made it easier for uh, mainlanders to, to, to write about the former nationalists' uh, contributions to the naval effort. And so I think the thawing of cross-strait relations of that, of, of that particular period made it easier to write, up, write more forthrightly about the nationalist contributions uh, to that effort. And I think the third element to why some of these sources became available um, more recently is the fact that um, China wants to show that it has independent agency over its sea power ambitions and that um, it doesn't want to, um, you know, it, it's, it's really not in its interest to write a narrative where China was heavily dependent on the Soviet Union. Uh, and, and, and so you can see from the literature um, an attempt to downplay uh, the Soviet advisory role, even though I would argue it's still quite important, and try to play up the role of the nationalist even, right? Because that's a, that's a Chinese contribution mm -hmm. to the sea power endeavor. So I think it's a confluence of these various factors that I think explains both uh, the growth in the writings, the availability of these writings, uh, that help to you know, shed, shed new light on this, on this period. Were there declassified documents that were helpful in writing this book? In terms of the sources that I used, um, I used uh, the Chinese Navy sort of you know official books, including the, you know things like the uh, the Chinese Navy's official encyclopedia, 
China's official histories uh, published in, in the 80s, um, looking at uh, memoirs uh, by Chinese leaders. Uh, so uh, Commander Xiao Jingguang's memoirs were particularly um, eye-opening uh, and um, invaluable. Um, there were also uh, internally circulated PLA books that I was able to get my hands on. Uh, those I hold in fairly high esteem because clearly um, Chinese analysts have an interest to, to be very blunt and honest, both about their successes and their failures. So uh, those were very valuable. There were also some really interesting um, secondary sources that reportedly uh, relied on um, uh, newly available archives in China. So while they're secondary works, many of the files that they relied on were were things that were not available to even Chinese scholars and analysts. So, although I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking through these secondary sources. Those secondary sources were in turn uh, dependent on these newly available materials. And so, it's a combination of these um, resources that allowed me to kind of put 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 this storyline together. On page one hundred one, you write that one nationalist warship sank 60 vessels in early 1950. They sank 122 boats. Uh, these were all based on CIA estimates. Was CIA correct in its estimates of what was going on at this time? So what I tried to do was, well, l let me sort of rewind back to one of the caveats that I added to the report, uh, which is that we have to be careful about the Chinese sources themselves um, because, you know, um, as I... As I read, uh, you know, some of these works, there was clearly um, uh, a, a high degree of triumphalism and a hagiography uh, um, involved in these writings. Um, and so, you know, it's important not to take those Chinese writings at face value. And so in order to counterbalance that triumphalism, uh, I tried to reference some of these um, CIA reporting about you know, about the events um, unfolding. I also tried to rely on Republic of China uh, sources, so uh, sources published by ROC, Armed Forces Journals, that occasionally engage in these uh, retrospectives of, of this period uh, to, at a minimum, try to cross-check uh, what, the, what the communist writings uh, were trying to convey and to the extent possible, if there were inconsistencies between the, the various storylines, I would at least try to highlight those storylines. It, it's not exactly clear to me um, the sources and methods of the CIA reporting. I suspect that some of it was actually, you know, basically, you know, nationalists reporting back through the CIA. Um, and so, you know, I, would, I, I wouldn't sort of... Um, count definitively on the CIA account as somehow more authoritative than, than the Chinese writings. But at least it helps to raise some questions about things, uh, you know, related to either uh, the, you know, the ease of the communist operations, uh, the costs of some of these Chinese, uh, of, of uh, some of these communist operations. And it seems to me that if you, you, you know, if you, if, if you look at those three sources, it helps to at least triangulate a little bit about um, where the quote-unquote ground truth might be. Uh, uh, and so I think um, I, would, I would tend to 
um, be skeptical about some of the storylines by the communists that suggest that they suffered very few losses or that uh, those operations went very smoothly. Uh, it seems to me, for example, uh, the Hainan campaign, uh, that uh, the communists probably suffered much larger casualties in terms of their uh, failures in their sea crossings than their writings led on. The PLA was not always successful in these islands, the island campaigns. Can you tell us what they learned from their wins and their losses, as it were? So what's really interesting um, is that there appear, and, and it sort of validates um, the way I structured the book by looking at them through institutions, by looking at how the third field army compared to the fourth field army. Uh, and it seems to me that the third field army uh, sort of performed indifferently in terms of they had uh, some important successes, but also some significant losses. And that some of those operational lessons were then learned by the fourth field army. And the fourth field army, you know, behaved rather differently in, in terms of the way they prepared for the Hainan campaign, um, the way they harnessed their resources, the way they trained and exercised. Whereas it seems to me the Third Field Army was um, frequently haphazard in their operations. They seemed to have been in a hurry. Uh, they didn't spend the time necessary to prepare and train for the various uh, sea crossings. Uh, and there were, of course, clearly um, instances of um, failure to accurately assess the situation based on either faulty intelligence or uh, assumptions about adversary strength. So, um, you know, some of the lessons that they learned from, especially uh, the failures, um, are things that include, you know, things, uh, things like um, understanding yourself, understanding your enemy, uh, having a good grasp of intelligence to have a good assessment of the tactical balance of power on the ground. Um, um, another one is not to underestimate uh, the adversary. Um, another is to ensure that you can employ overwhelming force to ensure that you can not only secure a lodgment in these types of amphibious operations, uh, but that you have um, sufficient mass to uh, support uh, those forces ashore, but also to sustain those uh, forces ashore. <clears throat> um, to have, uh, and related to that, of course, is having adequate shipping to ensure that you can not only uh, uh, land sufficient number of forces on those beaches, but also to have enough shipping for uh, resupply. Uh, one of the challenges that they that they suffered through during this period, which is frankly kind of extraordinary, is uh, the importance of uh, air and sea superiority, of which they didn't have any, um, and yet they were you know they managed to pull off some significant victories despite the fact that they didn't have air and sea superiority. Um, I think all of those lessons are, of course, highly relevant to any contingency related to uh, Taiwan. And you know, as I document in the book, um, they frequently, you know, reference um, back to um, how these battles, particularly the big failures, uh, are cautionary tales as they think about a potential invasion. They're still thinking about this today. That's right. And, and, you know, and I show how. Um, Scholars and analysts continue to debate the causes of these various failures, um, again, as a way to think about um, uh, how their current planning for, say, a Taiwan contingency uh, should take some of these factors into consideration. Several years ago, I had given a, a tour of a Chinese admiral, PLAN admiral. By serendipity, I had hit the video for uh, the Battle of Manila Bay. 
And he began speaking through his translator very quickly, and I realized very quickly that he was about 10 seconds ahead of the text on the battle where he's discussing the contours of Manila Bay and the shortcomings of the fleets. And and I said I stopped it, and I said, you know, the Admiral understands Manila Bay, and through his translator said very proudly, yes, I studied it extensively at my war college, and I, uh, I, tell, I start every semester of naval history with that with my students. So I'm really glad that you point that out, that, you know, we are a teaching institution, that there are lessons from from our, our foundations, whether it's us or, or the Chinese or somebody else, that you can draw upon. Uh, you know, to your point about the importance of history, of learning history, what I found in the course of doing my research for this project and for other projects is just how good the Chinese are as students of history, that they appreciate the importance of history and they understand that the past has much to teach them. And that raises uh, two things in terms of learning. I think it's important for us to learn where and what the PLA is learning. Um, and what they're learning from the past is usually going to be very different from, from ours. Uh, and that, that suggests that we need to study what they're studying. So for, um, so for example, I think the PLA's main um, historical lessons are obviously its own past. It has a very proud multi-decade combat history from the late 1920s all the way to 1949 in terms of the revolutionary period where they were able to pull off an incredible series of victories, particularly in the last 18 months of the Chinese Civil War. Uh, I think we really need to deeply understand that history in order to appreciate the lessons that they're learning from that period. Certainly in terms of um, the post-1949 period, uh, the Chinese have studied extensively, obviously, their own wars in Korea and in India and so forth and Vietnam. We need to understand those and to understand the, the lessons that they have drawn from, from those. They're, they study very closely the past wars that the United States has been, engagement, uh, you know, has been engaged in from the first Gulf War all the way to the two wars in the Middle East. They're certainly closely watching the war in Ukraine. Um, and then I think there's another set of uh, past wars that, that we, we don't really know quite as well, and we should which is the wars in antiquity. Um, we should not underestimate the importance of uh, the dynastic wars of the past uh, that continue to serve uh, as an inspiration uh, for the PLA. And so um, I think we need to seek to better understand the past that they're learning and not assume that the past that we learn, right? So, you know, the wars of the West, say World War I, World War II, uh, and the other wars of decolonization, that that you know we should we should sort of change our frame and try to understand what wars matter to the PLA, not not the wars that matter to us. But on a side note, uh, I recently uh, came out with a report through CSBA on uh, Chinese lessons from the Pacific War, and it seems to me that they are drawing some fairly relevant lessons uh, as the PLA becomes a peer rival. Uh, and that the lessons of the recent past that involved wars uh, that had sharp asymmetries of power between very weak and very strong powers, those wars are likely to lose ana um, analytic salience. And it's, it's, it's actually going to be the past wars between peer navies uh, that will be uh, increasingly relevant. 
And so um, understanding what matters to the PLA in terms of the historical lessons that they're learning, I think, is, 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 should be an important part of our study of the PLA. And we'll include the link to the, your CSBA report in the show notes as well. Terrific. Thank you. Great. Toshi, what's the one thing you wish you had known in the course of your research that you couldn't find or that was not available? You know, one of the things that I mentioned in the book that requires further research is um, the nationalist legacy and its influence on uh, Chinese naval strategy. Um, it's let it, you know, it may be less of a function of not having the materials or not knowing, but it was just sort of I, I had this cutoff date, but I think that there. There, you know, there are certain areas that we can continue to explore, which is, you know, what happened to some of these former nationalist officers? Um, how did they continue on in their careers? And to what extent uh, could we trace that influence to the Chinese Navy through the 60s, 70s, and perhaps even to, to this day? Um, I think one of the things that I would want to know, and I realize, you know, this is certainly the one area where it's much more difficult uh, to explore, is... Uh, the influence of the field armies uh, on the regional fleets. So, as I document, the third, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the third field army uh, had a lasting influence on the East Sea Fleet, and the fourth field army had a lasting influence on the South Sea Fleet. Um, but the fleet organizations are operate are, are are operational organizations, and they're they're they tend to be very tight lipped about about that, and so. Uh, I would, you know, I wish that there were sources that were available that would allow us to explore um, the extent to which the third and fourth field army sort of left those lasting legacies, particularly in terms of uh, the fleet's operational, you know, proclivities to this, possibly to this very day. Our guest for this episode has been Dr. Toshi Ashihara. His most recent book is Mao's Army Goes to Sea, The Island Campaigns and the Founding of China's Navy uh, by Georgetown University Press. I strongly recommend it. It was a great read. I learned a lot. So thank you for writing it. And Toshi, thanks for coming in and, and uh, speaking with us. Thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for joining us for another episode of the Preble Hall Naval History Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please leave feedback wherever you're listening to this. Have a great day. Rebel Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.